This is the Ardella Training Podcast, the leader in innovative strength training for today's fitness enthusiast, coach, trainer, and athlete. The weekly podcast brings you all things strength and performance without the BS so you can train stronger, smarter, and safer, helping you get results. Join the revolution now and become part of the community at ardellatraining.com. Ardella Training is dedicated to forging athletic bodies around the world. Here's your host, strength and conditioning specialist and former physical therapist, Scott Ardella. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Scott and welcome to episode number 88. I'm glad you're here and I think you're going to love this episode. I have a great interview with Kelly Sturette, author of the brand new book, Ready to Run. And obviously he's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Supple Leopard, which is fantastic. He's a creator of Mobility Wad. He is a internationally renowned physical therapist, strength coach, and really a, uh, a pioneer in what he's doing with human performance and mobility. And I'm really honored that Kelly came back to do this interview. Kelly was a past guest on the Ardella Training Podcast. We did an interview way back in episode uh, 25, and things have certainly evolved a lot here on the podcast since then. But uh, it was really a pleasure to interview Kelly back then. And uh, as you're going to hear in this interview, he shares more great uh, insight and information around optimizing human performance. I was also very uh, fortunate to meet Kelly at his movement and mobility seminar that was back in August of 2013. And he's just a great guy. I mean, he really is. What he is doing for uh, human performance and uh, movement and mobility is uh, really, really unbelievable. And it's really evolving into new levels. And you're going to hear about that in the interview. So I have the book uh, ready to run. A couple of things. I'm not a runner. Uh, I, I sprint. I like to sprint. Uh, I will do occasional uh, short uh, runs, but I am not a runner by any means. And I love this book. Uh, to me, this book is about uh, movement and and performance and minimizing the risk for injury. It's a great, great book. Uh, the book is organized basically into four parts. Uh, there's basically part one, which is the background on running. Part two is the 12 standards. You're going to hear a little bit about that in the interview. That's really the meat of the book. These uh, 12 standards, really, really um, valuable information and, and things that I'm going to certainly start to incorporate in uh, what I look at as well. And then uh, part three is mobility work. And then part four is attacking common injuries. So a really, really great book. As a matter of fact, uh, look for a uh, upcoming review in Amazon where I'll break down uh, my take on why this book is so important for everybody. And I really think that this book is valuable because running is described as being a compound functional movement that we were designed to do in daily life. So whether you're a runner or not, I think uh, this book is going to be a really valuable and important read for you. And again, it's really all about maximizing movement, performance, and reducing the risk for injury. So it's a really exceptional book, again, and I highly, highly recommend it. So uh, listen, we're going to jump right into the interview here and uh, in the spirit of kind of keeping things no fluff, no BS, I'm going to defer the Ask Scott question this week and maybe next week 
because uh, I have some other great interviews coming your way as well. And, uh, and we'll get back to the uh, answering your questions in, in future episodes. Uh, I do want to let you know before we get started in this interview, there are lots of new and exciting things going on at Ardella Training. And if you're interested in learning more about what is happening and uh, new things that are, that are going on right now, please be sure to join the community at ArdellaTraining.com. Go to ArdellaTraining.com forward slash join, and I'll send you a great report that has 12 of my best kettlebell workouts and these are really powerful kettlebell workouts so uh join the community over there and uh things are getting really really exciting and i hope you uh become part of it if you're not already so with that let's uh let's jump right into this interview again this is a really great interview and i hope you listen all the way through again he's an innovator he's a pioneer and he's really just revolutionizing human performance so lots of good stuff in this interview and uh, make sure that you listen all the way through. Let's get started. All right, guys, I'm really excited because we have New York Times bestselling author Kelly Strett come back and join us on the Ardella Training Podcast today. And Kelly, it's great to have you back here, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much. It's I a lot has changed in the 18 months since we last talked. Yeah, I imagine it has. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. You know, we did this uh, interview some time ago talking about Supple Leopard. And well, let me just ask you, so what has changed since the time of Supple Leopard? You know, we have seen uh, culturally sort of a, a shift towards, you know, performance, a shift towards people really being able to understand and own their own mechanics and being able to take a crack at it. We have seen Supple Leopard go crazy, crazy places because, you know, for us, you know, it's, it's been picked up in physio schools and chiro schools, and that's great that practitioners are using it. In fact, all the good research in physical therapy right now is looking at um, sort of the change between sessions. So the intercession change, not the intra-session change. So typically, we always measure you know, you know, the changes that we can get in a range of motion or tissue quality in a single session. But what we're really thinking is the more, most important aspect of this now is how much change happens between visits. Well, that's where Supple Leopard just drops right in because we've got a better set of tools for actually making changes to the biomechanics and mapping that into sort of a motor control framework. And what we're really finding out is that if we shift the burden of care or the burden of, 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 of fixing away from the physio intervention, the chiro intervention, it's expensive, it's hard, you know, insurance is, is cracked down, and we put it back onto the strength coach and the athlete. Right. These are very, very simple problems, and we're starting to see a greater, like a real incredible sophistication in talking to runners and in talking to athletes about their problems. It's, it's been a revolution yeah. to see people realize that, hey, I can do this, and I, I can, and then when I run out of you know, room where I run out of ideas, I go see a therapist or a professional, right. but the 90% really should be owned by us yeah. as the strength coach, as the PE teacher, as the, as the elementary school teacher. And that's the, where we've seen the big kind of tide change. So the self-maintenance has really been adopted is what you're saying. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, it's not like we haven't as humans tried to work on self-maintenance in the past or, or, you know, we were in Korea um, not too long ago, and Juliet and I were walking through a very traditional neighborhood, and there's a Korean woman there who had a pile of bones and horns on the table. Yeah. And I, I walked right up and started scraping my skin with one of these horns. 
And this is gua sha. These horns were designed for you to scrape your skin, right? right. It looks like dry. It's, it's the tooling. It's the instrumented fascial release that people maybe see, right? The, the you know, scraping tool. But it's, in Chinese terms, it's called gua sha. And here is this Korean woman who had this, these bones. So I started scraping my skin, and she lit up because I knew what it was. And I'm, what's, what's interesting is when we see fascial dysfunction or trying to change or reperfuse a tendon, I mean, the, the modern you know, PRP that we're approached where we're going in and trying to restart inflammation and perfusion and blood flow to tendons or, or poor tissues, this is the lowest form of expression of that, taking a set of bones and scraping your skin with it. <laughs> and my point is, you know, we've been working hard for a long time at creating ways to fix ourselves. Right. That's what we've been doing. But for the first time, I think we really have a cogent strength and conditioning model that helps us understand it can't just be about, you know, end range of flexibility. Are your muscles loose? It's not that at all. It's right. do you know how to move? Are you doing training that reinforces that? And so we've really seen a, a shift, and this is done on the back of Pavel and Gray Cook and Dan John and Greg Glassman. Yeah. And suddenly people were like, oh, I, I understand Pilates. I understand yoga. I understand you know, uh, powerlifting. We suddenly drop in a schema, a systems approach to fixing your own biomechanics, and now we really see the thing erupt. And that's been the difference. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because – so your new book that's coming out here in a couple of weeks, Ready to Run – uh, so obviously it's a book about running, but to me, it's a book about movement and performance, not only running. And I really like how you, you describe in the book that running is a compound functional movement that we were designed to do in daily life. So let's start with the problems that you most commonly see with running. Not, not so much the injuries, but what problems do you see with running? If I use the model at home, at our own home, is that my wife, Juliette, always laughs. She's like, you have ruined me. That when we see people <laughs> run down the street, it's, it's a horror show. Yeah. And, you know, because what the problem is, as human beings, we have this immaculate bounty to be able to report, perform literally hundreds of repetitions, millions of repetitions before there's any problem, right? Because the, the, the engineering of the ankle and the knee and the hip are so robust, <clears throat> these problems... <clears throat> Don't even show up literally for five or 10 or 15 years. You can strike the ground wrong. You can heel strike. You can run overextended. You can have your neck seven inches forward on your head. You can do all these crazy things and still run a marathon. You might be stiff or hurt or, you know, but the problem is fundamentally that we have never taught people the skill. And what we, you know, people say, well, is it organic? Well, yes. What we see is that children do run correctly. And if yes. you go to any kindergarten class and take <laughs> a sample of any kindergarten all the way up in the first semester of first grade, yeah. everyone runs the same. They run the same barefoot as they run, the, run with shoes. It doesn't matter. Right. And every child falls forward. It looks like pose. It looks like chi. It looks like any model of running, midfoot, natural strike, whatever you call it. There's only one way to run. Then suddenly something happens through around the first grade, and what we've come to suspect is that there's these environmental changes that start to mold. And so we either catch these dysfunctional patterns early on, and we, hey, he can't heel strike, and you know, we catch them, or there literally is a dichotomy in what happens is kids start heel striking in the first grade, which is an aberration. You cannot run and play frisbee and sprint heel striking. You cannot heel strike barefoot. 
heel striking right. is a is a symptom of being able to run with a specific shoe, right? That cushions that load, right? And and is a construct, a hundred percent. Uh, it's like saying, well, hey, I, I can lift anything up if I put this belt on. I just wear this belt all day long, and I don't even have to use my abs or my spine anymore. The belt does it for me. And, but <laughs> as soon as you take the belt off, you can't pick up anything. And, you know, it's not anyone's fault. It's that we didn't know. And all you have to do is sort of delve into the injury st- st- statistics and look at this critically. The running shoe industry is a $4 billion industry. That's billion dollars. And, wow. you know, the Vance Range Shoes thing, what, what, what Reebok is doing, what Nike is doing, I mean, people are doing, making incredible shoes with amazing technology, comma, we're still making this basic assumption that the shoe is the problem. And when really we are the problem, we have shortened our adaptive, our heel cords have gotten shortened. We don't warm up. We don't cool down. We make all these errors. Right. Our biomechanics are off. Our tissues are stiff. Our ankles don't work. I mean, it's, you know, and then we don't have the technique to learn to run. And if you imagine, <clears throat> if you played even a high school sport, how much time did you work on technique? Every practice. And when I was, you know, we, were, we looked at it this way. When we practiced enough, we were rewarded by being able to scrimmage, Right. But running is the only thing that we sort of just be like, oh, yeah, go do it. And it doesn't matter if you run duck-footed, crazy, heel-striking, slapping. It. You can still run, and we're, all we value is did you run, yes or no. And if you ask someone, even like, hey, I heard you ran a 5K this weekend, the only question you ask is what was your time, which is right. only valuing not process or quality of movement. And and, and if, we, if we extrapolate this backwards, <clears throat> you know, Everyone knows you should not round your back when you pick up something heavy off the ground, right? Right. Well, all we need to do is take that common understanding and say, hey, let's, let's apply that and let's go ahead and make being a human skillful again. And our idea is a lot of times people are solving their own movement dysfunctions on the fly. <clears throat> they don't have enough hip range of motion. Their tissues are stiff. Their ankles don't work. And if we start to clean those things up one at a time, give them the requisite range of motion, tissue health, then automatically, even if you run weirdly, right, not naturally, we still know we're going to eat deeply into that that injury statistic, which is 80% of runners are injured in a year. Wow. But wow. also, we, we create a ready space where you can learn the other technique. And the problem <clears throat> is that, you know, a book like Born to Run came out, Yes. And all of a sudden we're like, this is great. I go get a flat shoe. Right. I go try to strike on my feet. And you know what happened? The injury rates spiked like through the roof and to the point where really good physical therapists, you know, in the national you know, level were saying, hey, it's safer to heel strike than it is to, to, to run this way because the injuries are less severe. And that is just the craziest thinking of all time. Yeah. So don't you think that the injury spike was due to the rapid change? Oh, 100%. So, okay. you know, imagine, you know, imagine when, we, when we, cla- we say runners in America, those are people who usually run three times a week. That's the, the, the statistic baseline that we kind of are quoting. You know, these runners are running three times a week for fitness. It doesn't say what or how far. It's, it's sort of volume independent. And so what we have is people who have been moving a certain way their whole life, maybe 20 years, and also have considerable cardiorespiratory capacity. Like these are badass aerobic machines, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden we're like, hey, I'm going to drop you out of that 
centimeter plus heel short, like the differential in your shoe, right. we go flat, and already that alone can change and, and interrupt the dynamics of your running so severely that you avulse your Achilles tendon, you create all kinds of, of mechanical problems, your foot starts to freak out. And in fact, I mean, this has been done for us. So in the NFL a couple of years ago, Nike introduced a new cleat that was very flat. And they, the, the NFL saw a huge spike in this thing called a Liz Frank fracture, which is a, a fracture in the middle of the foot. And right. the problem was that because these guys would cruise around all the time in basically a high heel athletic shoe right. and play in a flat shoe, there was some mechanic that had – they didn't have the ankle range of motion. And so the body compensated and it compensated by creating another hinge right in the middle of the foot that resulted in a fracture. And so to your point, yes, people did not give themselves a chance to A, adapt just naturally by saying, hey, I'm just going to walk around barefoot. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run in my high heel shoe, but I'm going to walk around in flat shoes. We didn't, we didn't give people a template for this. Yeah. They went out and it got so bad that big army bases basically banned, big, big army bases banned Vibram fat, flat shoes because – what they were seeing was that their soldiers were monsters, would go out and just the first day out with this new range, right, right. weak feet, boom, and, and create devastating injuries for themselves. So what would you say, is there maybe like a three-step approach to transitioning from a conventional running shoe to some type of minimalist shoe, I, you know, whatever steps it is, but what would be the, the stepwise approach to safely and effectively make that transition? Oh, sure. And, you know, and I'm that person. I had to transition <laughs> down. I mean, I, you know, yeah. when you knew me, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, nine years ago, I was running in a big, heavy motion control shoe with a custom insole, you know, cause I'm a physio. I'm like, right. well, that's what I do. I, I pronate <laughs> and, you know, I heel strike. And, um, so, you know, and I had, and, and just as an aside, I had knee pain running. I could sprint, I could deadlift and jump and push press, but when I ran, I had knee pain. And so, you know, if you do the differential diagnosis on that, I had freakish capacities, could, could sprint pain-free, could do all these other things, but when I jogged, boom, instant knee pain. And it wasn't until, one, I learned the technique of running that all of that went away. And then my friend, Brian McKenzie, who taught me the basic that I was running in squalor, you know, basically <laughs> signed me up for an ultra marathon and said, Oh yeah, now you think you can run, prove it. And I ran an ultra marathon, no knee pain, totally fine. Ran it in like a, like a little tiny, like light, light, light shoe. And, uh, you know, a little innovate light shoe and, um, and ran fine. And wow. so the, the point is, you know, it should, your running technique should be independent of whatever shoe you're wearing. And this is an important distinction because we see a lot of people, police officers, military, where I have to wear a boot. And you can still run correctly in any kind of footwear, right? And that, that was sort of a breakthrough for us because huh. what we realized is, okay, we're not going to be able to get flat shoes and you're gonna, they're going to be heavy. But the technique remains the same whether I'm wearing – you know, if I'm writing my name, I don't change my technique if I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt or a short sleeve shirt, right? It doesn't right, matter. Right. The pen is independent of the running technique. Right. So or the writing technique. So what we thought was, hey, let's keep people running in their short shoe for now, in their, in their sort of high heel or shoe with a, more of a differential, 
and let's go ahead and spend the rest of the time being flat so that we look at running as, hey, let's give you an advantage of making technique mistakes running. But in the rest of your life, let's, let's spend the time barefoot. You know, we have a concept in the book called Barefoot Saturday, which is just like, hey, don't right. put shoes on for an entire day. If you go into the grocery store, get some slip-ons with a heel, like a Sanic or some kind of slipper. Like Reebok makes this thing, the, the shoe called the Nanosage. Yeah. That I was like, look, we got to get people out of flip-flops into something with a back that's flat. And then let's go ahead and spend the rest of our time barefoot as much as we can, and then we'll make the error towards heel. And then over time, we can slowly, gradually bring you down. And so what we know is that it takes about seven months to turn over all your fascia. So all of your connective tissue is going to turn over in about seven months. We'll see complete skeletal remodeling in about 12 months to 18 months. So your body is constantly readapting and reforming itself to the stresses that you're putting on it. And so one of our ideas was, hey, let's just be flat all the time, and then let's go ahead and move towards a flatter shoe, which means I can now stepwise down every three or four months. I just take myself down a little bit, take myself down a little bit. We've, to the point where I'm like, look, probably any, honestly anything under five millimeters of drop, three to five millimeters of drop – probably doesn't make a difference when you run, as long as you're running correctly. Right. But your technique should look the same barefoot or with a shoe. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. You should be able to run in a flat shoe because you're a human being, Yeah. right? Right. But I'm willing to concede that my wife is going to wear cute shoes once in a while. I'm willing to concede that I get stuck on the airplane. I'm willing to concede I sort of take athletes where they've been. If you've been wearing a a high heel running shoe or athletic shoe plus a business shoe your whole life, well, okay, okay, let's, let's, let's be reasonable. Let's take a systems approach while simultaneously, and here's the second half of the book, (laughs) fixing the mechanics. So let's go ahead and not just wait for it magically to happen, but let's go ahead and cultivate better positions in standing, better positions in moving, and then let's make sure that you have the requisite biomechanics that physically allow you to get into the shapes. And, and when we start to take that approach, what we've seen is, you know, these injury rates have really evaporated, you know? Yeah. So that's really interesting information. And I have to ask this question now, since we're talking about the whole kind of barefoot approach and the barefoot Saturday. So you talked in the book about flip-flops and why they're a no-go. And I think that a lot of people would think that a flip-flop is a safe way to transition from a heel to a flat-soled shoe. So why are flip-flops actually a bad thing? Well, you know, what, what we noticed, if you look at the foot as a structure that has to <clears throat> adjust to the contour of the ground, And then during the gait, during this running cycle, when my center of mass translates over my foot, what happens is that the foot has mechanics in it where the foot then becomes rigid. It becomes a rigid, strong, propulsive mechanism. So it goes from sort of the soft-ish, it's very strong, but soft-ish, so I can can adapt to the surface, I can change my direction, I can uh, be on an uneven surface. And then as I move forward, my toe is I start to flex my big toe, yes. what ends up happening is that the plantar fascia, and everyone has ever heard of the plantar fasciitis issue, the plantar fascia starts to wind up and become stable. <clears throat> then my foot becomes a rigid, strong, propulsive springboard. The problem with the, the flip-flop is that you're going to clench your toe in order to keep the flip-flop on 
and you're going to co-contract your ankle. So you're going to create artificial stiffness in the big toe, which does not allow that toe to flex right. and create stability in the foot. And what you're going to see is that also that as you create stiffness to keep the ankle on, and that's what makes the flip-flop noise, you basically flexing the toe down, snap. And if you flex your toe harder, you get a louder snap. And so what ends up happening is that you start to, one, radically change the foot mechanics. So your foot becomes stiff. They don't work like feet anymore. In fact, they work like ski boots. And you start to turn your foot out to walk, and now you're walking through the foot because your ankle doesn't work anymore. Your toe is stiff. Your plantar fascia is too rigid. Instead of breaking at the toe, you end up turning the foot out. And if you go to cultures that wear flip-flops, you will see, and in Hawaii, they actually call this island feet, and that kids who grew up wearing slippers have very, very collapsed, destroyed arches, and where the whole mechanics of the foot, and early in the mobility wad cycle, we did an episode with John Wellborn, where we talked about this phenomenon we call navicular drop. When your navicular bone, which is basically one of the bones of the feet, just inside your ankle bone a little bit, when your arch collapse, your navicular bone drops down. And that's an indicator that you've lost that normal position and the whole foot starts to collapse. You basically stretch out all of the ligaments and small tendons and connective tissue. That navicular drop is in, for NFL is an indicator that you're more likely to tear your ACL because as the foot collapses, your knee comes in. Right. As your foot collapses, that's the mechanism for creating a bunion. That's the mechanism for plantar fascia shearing. That's the mechanism for you know my Achilles pulling off axis. That's the mechanism for all the other issues that we see. So right. what we see is, look, the take it or leave it. And, and putting on slippers or flip-flops to go walk into a public shower for five minutes will not destroy you. That's totally safe. Sure. But what you'll see is that when you wear the flip-flop, and we get a lot of people reporting this, and we say, hey, look, take the 30-day challenge. Don't wear slippers for 30 days and tell me what happens to your knees, tell me what happens to your calves. Further is that you know, while the flip-flop is flat, you'll see that in these island cultures where kids don't wear flip-flops, they have beautiful arches. So we just got back from Africa. We were taking a little family trip there. We we're in Tanzania. A lot of the barefoot Maasai have the most beautiful, structurally sound feet of all time, right? And when they wear, when they wear their own shoes, what they make out of tires, it turns out that the shoe they're making out of tires has a back on it. And that back strap, just like a Sanic or a sandal with a heel back, allows the foot to continue to work correctly. So here's a culture that has to walk over the rough ground and chase after cattle. And even they have adopted their homemade footwear to have correct sandal mechanics in the back. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. That is so when, amazing um, information. When, when, we see, when we see the foot then translate through also and swing, one of the problems is it now has destroyed the natural kind of swing of your leg and because your ankle is stiff and your toe is, is up and kind of clenched, you basically have wrenched down your sciatic nerve and all of those nerves in the foot, which pulls on the sciatic nerve. And now we have a neural mechanical tensioner from the bottom of the foot. Like if there is a single thing, if you love your children, do not let them wear flip-flops. Just, it's yeah. so simple. And, uh, and I, I hate to say it. I know, I know this is very unpopular. People look good in their flip-flops, but there are so many good options now. Even Tom's shoes are a better option than flip-flops. Yeah. So 
We, we try to get them banned in every university and every program we work with. So I live in South Florida, and, you know, flip-flops are rampant down here. And um, so either bare feet or a minimalist shoe would be the, the recommendation. Yeah, or, or uh, you know, wear a sandal. Just has to have a back. Like, you can wear a cute right. woman's sandal, you know. Go ahead. Just it has to have a strap on the back. And here, take the test for me. Go ahead and sprint in your flip-flops. Let me know what happens to you. You're yeah. going to feel <laughs> like it doesn't work. Right. And that's really one of the issues is that – we need to make sure that we're adopting techniques that can be done slow and fast and that there's no disruption in that technique. I shouldn't have to change my mechanics when I go from – if I accelerate. The, the mechanics stay the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, and I think you know, what you'll see actually – and uh, recently this summer, my wife and I went we – we were up camping on the river. Our, got, our daughter was at this uh, whitewater guide school and um, we didn't wear shoes for five days. And uh, I don't know the last time you actually wow. didn't put shoes on for five days, but if you have the opportunity to do that, you'll see that day one, our, you know, we walk around barefoot a lot. We, walk, we do a barefoot mile all the time in our house. Yeah. And even like all the thorns stopped penetrating our feet after like day three. And then I started shortening my stride. I started increasing my stride rate. Everything feels better. It's remarkable that, you know, when, when we look at the foot, you know, Romanoff, you know, Nikolai Romanoff, who's, who's just like the godfather of running technique, you know, and he had this great saying, he's like, look, the arch is a non-weight bearing surface. Look at any other arch in the world. Tell me what's, what's supporting the arch. There's nothing supporting the arch because it's an arch, right? You don't have a support. So what are we doing? And when we really start looking at the foot, the fact that we have to strengthen the feet, we have to make sure that the feet are supple, you know, and then we don't sort of cripple ourselves with Chinese foot binding shoes, then all of a sudden we really create a lot of, of upregulation in the system. And it's pretty miraculous because, you know, it's not just bony in your foot, it's bony and muscular and connective tissue based and ligamentous based. And when we look, start operating on all those systems, bam, your bunions go away, your plantar fascia goes away. In fact, about three weeks ago in the New York Times, there was a great piece about a stretch that cured plantar fasciitis. Did you see this? No. Oh, so good. So they're basically like, look, you're going to take your big toe and you're going to put a towel under your big toe. Then on a box, you're going to let your heel drop off. And so what they did was they, they put the ankle into a little bit of a stretch from the back, just like a stair, right? right? While simultaneously loading the big toe. And they were like, this seems to work a lot. It helps resolve this. Well, you know what that is? That is the barefoot walking position. When you huh. put your foot behind you, Interesting. you load the calf and you flex your big toe. So you can do this, like this, you know, this, this correlate for human movement, or you can walk around barefoot, which seems to work a little bit better for me and, and it's less dorky. Right, right. <laughs> oh, man, I'll have to check that out. So what's a, what's a problem with orthotics, Kelly? Because typically, you know, that's usually the fix for excessive pronation. Right. Well, you know, and, and again, that's like saying, hey, I keep noticing that you wear out your right tire. So let's just put a beefier tire on that, right? And never mind that the alignment is off and the shocks are destroyed and, you know, uh, the, the wheel bearings are bent. It really ends up being just, hey, the foot looks like it's in a bad position. Let's go ahead and fix it. Well, Number one, and we do recommend orthotics, we actually have athletes. And I have this one athlete on like basically a national level rugby team. 
and his feet are so destroyed, he basically looks like he's walking around on the inside of his ankles. Like if you saw them, wow. you'd be like, oh, I saw this movie. It's called The Elephant Man, <laughs> and you have Elephant Man uh, feet. I mean they're really, really not good. Yeah. So if he walks barefoot and he, we spend him time barefoot, he, he squats barefoot, we try to get him into good positions. As soon as he starts moving fast, he physically does not have the biomechanics to control his feet. And he ends up in pain. So what we do is we use an orthotic in that situation to support the foot structure so we don't cause any other problems. Simultaneously, while he spends as much time as he can barefoot, while he squats barefoot. And then when we squat and do the things that we recommend and ready to run, he can create an arch. He has a foot that looks and operates like a foot. And since we started this program, he's weaned himself back and only uses his orthotics when he's going 100 miles an hour into the, the guys because otherwise his toes hurt, his ankles hurt. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So what, we, what we're seeing is, you know, imagine that your foot, you know, it, it is like wearing a weight belt all the time. If you don't make your foot work, then what's going to happen is that your feet are going to become weak and stiff. And, you know, there are times where we'll talk about orthotics and – in a ski boot, for example, because the knee can't track correctly over the foot, right? There needs to be some slight rotation in the ankle and the knee. The knee tracks outside the foot a little bit in flexion. But because the ankle is fixed in a ski boot, sometimes we'll talk about an orthotic so that the foot just doesn't collapse into the ski boot. And if you, if you stand barefoot and have your knee just come forward, you'll see that the likelihood is that your ankle will collapse. And that's, what, that's not a, a good position. You're, in order to maintain your ankle shape, your knee is going to track your little toe. And so we'll also have that same conversation in cycling. But those are two instances where an orthotic in a fixed rigid shoe where I'm not flexing my ankle or my toes because I'm arbitrarily locked into a strange unilateral mechanic. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. The rest of the time, we really say, hey, look, you know, you need to, there's a great study that came out recently that looked at, and I think this is the University of Texas, or Texas A&M, the physician, the, the researcher down there is doing amazing work. But basically, they were able to show that kids who sat all the time did not develop the core trunk tone to be able to support their spines relative to kids even a decade or two decades ago. So we saw a lot weaker kids doing a lot more sitting. Well, let's say the same idea that if we don't spend time sort of creating strong feet, then what ends up happening is the feet become weaker and more, you know, dis more affected. So what we need to do is really look at, well, how long does it take for an arch to develop in a child? And it's like three or four years. Right? Kids walk around until they get strong. We have to build those intrinsics. We have to build the motor control have to create that and that's something i should be working on all the time because these are your feet yeah one of the key muscles you talked about in the book was the abductor halysis can you talk about the significance of that muscle in the foot well i'll tell you what um when i was in school um back in grad school there was a or undergrad there was a study that came out that when they used an orthotic they saw that this kind of the, the musculature of the feet and the musculature behind the shin turned on, right? They were like, whoa, we got better recruitment of this mus these muscles when we put the foot in a good position. Yes. Okay. So that must mean, ergo, let's give everyone orthotic because their feet are strong, right? Right. But the thinking is wrong there. And the thinking is when you're in a good position, your body works well. When you're in a bad position – 
the musculature and sort of function of the foot are attenuated. And we call that positional inhibition. So you can think of this when I'm in a bad position, I don't work very well. When I'm in a good physiologic, well-organized position, I do work well. Sure. And the same thing is true with the foot. And so what we have to do is we have to give people a template to basically strengthen the bottom of their feet. And I'm not saying, you know, if you strengthen this muscle, everything goes away because that's not how the body works. You cannot strengthen any single muscle. But when we put you into a system where we make the whole system upregulate, this is from hips down to feet, then we do see strengthening of all of the musculature that creates the arch. And now we've added another system back to the foot. We have the muscular system. We have the bony arches. We have the connective tissue, right, like the plantar fascia. All of those things start to work in symphony. And that's really where we start to see dramatic rebound. And, you know, working on the bottom of your feet, strengthening them by being in good shapes. You know, if you stand with your feet together and knees together, go ahead and try to just collapse your arches. Go ahead and try with your weight balanced over, you'll see that you can't do it. Turn your feet out like ducks. Just turn them out to like 40 degrees where most people stand, right? right? 40, 45 degrees. Right. And you'll see that immediately you collapse through. And so this thinking about position, position. Yep. really starts to integrate really different and disconnected sciences. So if you read Thomas Meyer's book, Anatomy Trains, you'll see that there are these natural spirals of fascia, these connective tissue patterns that support the, the structure of the foot all the way to the hip. And guess what? In yoga, they've been talking about that for like 10,000 years. It's called Tadasana, right? You root into the earth. It's the same technique we use when we squat. We screw our feet into the ground like they're on dinner plates and spread the floor. What we're tapping into is that when we are in good shapes, all of the musculature, all of the connective tissue, all of the joint capsules become more stable. And that's why it's so important that if you walk like a duck, What happens then when you accelerate that? Well, you're going to run like a duck. And so what you can see is we go from a slow pattern to a fast pattern, but the pattern and the tissue restrictions remain the same. But now, instead of just, you know, weight-bearing where I have two feet on the ground basically most of the time, well, all of a sudden I'm moving to a weight-bearing strategy where I have three to five times body weight on a single leg in a position that doesn't support it. And so I literally just start spending my genetics – and if you're a busy person, you'll take 10,000 steps a day. That's 10,000 yeah, steps. Yeah. That's, you know, running 400 meters is like 400 steps. And so what you'll start to see is if you start to do the math on that, you are landing in a wretched position. It's like rounding your back over and over and <laughs> over and over again. It's crazy. Yeah. But we don't look at it that way. And literally, as a physical therapist, you've heard this. People walk into your clinic and they're like, you know, I think I've herniated something. I got the MRI. And you're like, well, what happened? And they're like, I just picked up a pillow. And I'm like, well, how heavy was the pillow? You know, what, what happened was the person hinged rounded one more time, and it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, we see the same thing in running with your tissues. Right. So we've kind of been talking about this, but what we've been talking about really is the standards. So you have 12 standards in the book. And I don't know if you want to talk about all 12 or maybe just kind of talk about why these are so important for optimizing running. Well, you know, what we realize is that people have busy lives and that their mechanics is a moving target. So let's say that I have full ankle range of motion, but I spend a whole season skiing and I travel a whole bunch and I get behind and I, I launch a business or I have a baby and all of a sudden 
something changes. And I go for my run, and all of a sudden something hurts. Well, what we've tried to do with the standards is say, hey, these standards are, are not extra, super normal, extraordinary ranges of motion. These are the things that your body should be able to do. And by having a standard, that means that I can meet the standard and then also reference it. And so what we've done is it made it just one or zero, yes or no. Did I warm up? No. Okay, well, you can certainly run and not warm up. We know that to be true. That's the, that's the model for most busy people. I'm going to go for a run. I step out the door and I, go, I start jogging right away, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, we don't, we don't take racehorses. We don't treat racehorses that way. We don't take, treat race cars that way. I mean, that's the fastest way to kill an animal or destroy a race car is that you just rev the engine. But, you know, that's what we do. So if we can give people a better template to warming up physiologically – and cooling down just a little bit physiologically, then what we start to see is we start to, again, just ameliorate or attenuate some of the running problems. So by creating these standards, am I drinking enough water? Do I wear compression after I run? Am I warming up and cooling down? Can I hit these movement mechanic standards? Then it really becomes bright line. And when you move your body towards, you know, hitting these standards, even if you don't meet the standard, it may be enough to automatically improve your performance, which we knew to be absolutely true. And it may be enough to take you out of pain and prevent the injury. But when you start meeting the standard, I think what ends up happening is that people are going to realize they are going, they can go much faster than ever they thought and they can feel better. You know, running, I mean, if you, if you watch my, my, we walk to school every day, my kids wear flat shoes, we walk to school every day. And my kids run the entire way. They sprint <laughs> and they walk and they sprint and they walk. Like that's what happens. And it's so nice. amazing that, you know, they love running. If you ask me to sprint a mile, I'm going to be like, heck no. I have to go like, no way. Right? I'm okay. I run. I love, I've come to really like running. But what point did we stop liking running? Well, it turns out we stopped liking running when running started feeling bad to us. Right. Right. And if you listen to that, people like, it just doesn't feel good. Ah, I just don't like it. Well, why is it not feeling good? Well, it turns out you are stiff and dehydrated and nothing works. And it's like driving a really old car that hasn't turned the engine over and the steering wheel doesn't work and has bald tires and a brown door. Of course, it's not fun to drive. Yeah. So let's get you back to doing the basic maintenance, even though that's a moving target because your life is changing. And then we can start talking about brass tacks. Now we can start talking about your technique. But there's a lot of technique conversations that go on in the world that are so ridiculous because people don't even have the range of motion to express good technique. Right. So these standards are really important for optimizing performance and reducing the risk of injury. Is That's that, right. Yeah. And, and it really makes it simple to follow because, you know, there's been excellent books out there, you know, about running technique, but honestly, you can go down a rabbit hole and be really confused. And so we try to make this very, very clear. And with the recognition that you know, running is this ubiquitous, universal skill. It's the skill that makes us human. And you know, people are actually humans in complicated lives. So let's make it really simple. Let's clear off all the BS and have an honest conversation about how much water you're drinking and about your ankle range of motion. And now we can get somewhere without kind of farting around or making this you know, really touchy-feely. It's bright line, yes or no. You are either full physical capacity or you're not. You know, we do this thing all the time in our course and, uh, you know, where we have people lay down 
and we call it smashing. It's a very technical term. And basically, you take your foot, and I put it sideways on your quad, and I roll that foot back and forth. Right. And what ends up happening is that in people who have normal tissue, normal healthy like muscles and tissues, there's no pain. But if there's stiffness in the tissue, and that's about 99% of people, as soon as you put any pressure on that tissue, people freak out and vomit because it's so painful. And what we found is that that is a, a true indication of how poorly prepared your tissues are for loading. And you know you should be able to compress any tissue on your body, especially in a contracted tissue, and it shouldn't hurt at all. And that's a good indicator. So if you get a ball or a roller and you lay on it and you think you're going to die from pain, yeah. that's how far away from normal you are. We just haven't let people know that. All right. Since we're talking about pain here, let's talk about ice. I know you touched on this in the book a little bit, and this is something I, I really wanted to ask you. So why is icing a bad thing to reduce pain and inflammation? And as a physical therapist, I mean, this is something I grew up you know, using in the clinic for patients for years, um, yet I'm not sure the science really supports it. Well, and I, I know this is a big topic, but... <laughs> what I can say in a is the science absolutely does not report. In fact, the physician who coined the term rice was a, a brilliant physician who wrote the first textbook on sports medicine named Dr. Gabe Merkin. And you can look it up, and he, he wrote the textbook on sports medicine, and this guy is brilliant. And he coined the term rest, ice, compression, elevation. Right. And last year, after sort of hearing us talk about icing... Gary Rinal and I, and, and reading this book that Gary Rinal put together about the research of icing called Iced, you can right. see it on Amazon, yep. is that Gabe was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. The research doesn't support it. I was wrong. Really? We need to ditch wow. the ice out of rice. So the guy who coined the term was like, we were totally wrong. Sorry about that. Made a mistake. And the short is, icing does nothing to reduce swelling. What, what, that's not going to stop. Let me stop. The reason we ice is because we have swelling, right, which is really a symptom of inflammation. So the question is, do you think that you are more sophisticated or less sophisticated than your body about trying to control the inflammatory response? Remember, that inflammatory response is how you heal. That's why you get sore after you train. So if we're doing anything to sort of stop that, then what we're really doing is limiting our body's ability to heal. But what we were doing, we're thinking is, hey, let's control the swelling. If I stop the inflammation, I stop the swelling, which is true. But the real issue is that we need to move the swelling out of there, not stop or slow down the, the inflammation. And a few years ago, maybe in 2008, I wrote an article called, um, uh, you know, get off the ibuprofens, people. And what <laughs> we were seeing was that, hey, taking large amounts of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs also suppressed the inflammatory process, and limited healing in tissue injuries. And now almost no physician prescribes Motrin or these NSAIDs after surgery. We've seen a real sort of tide shift where athletes are not, they're sore, but they're not taking ibuprofen or aspirin to try to, to deal with their pain because what we realize is that it's stopping the circulating stem cells, it's stopping the macrophages, it's stopping the entire inflammatory cascade that's required for for healing, well, icing does the same thing. It suppresses prostaglandins. It, it backs up tissues. The way that we clear out swelling out of joints out of the body is through muscle contraction. 
That's how we clean the lymphatic system. It's all muscle contraction. And what one of the problems is when we break the connection between the brain and the vessel, the vessel actually starts to blow out and, and all that swelling goes back into the tissues. We actually have worse problems. So what I can say is ice is absolutely necessary when you're drinking warm margaritas. <laughs> we have not nice. seen it support any other intervention except maybe open heart surgery where I'm trying to slow your heart basal rate down, right? Yep. Then that's a good use for ice again. That but is, oh, go but ahead. otherwise... You know, what it really does is it limits and slows down the healing, and it's nonspecific. We never take tissue temperatures. We never take joint temperatures. We, you know, icing 20 minutes every other hour, how warm is the room? What's the skin temperature? How does that work? What your body does literally is it waits for your tissues to warm up, and then it starts healing again. And recently, some excellent research just came out that showed that icing delayed the, the healing response from intense exercise. So if you squat heavier, run hard, and jump in an ice bath, guess what? It literally slowed the adaptation process and limited the strength gains. I mean, you cannot make a case for icing. Is there ever a situation where we, where you would use ice for an athlete? Uh, let's just say that I had such horrific pain control problems, and the only way I had any deal with being able to maybe manage the pain, maybe... And again, that would be a physician-level problem. But the real issue is we see is that when you actually ice or numb an area, you can't tell what movements are hurting it anymore. And so what we, we see is that you know athletes ice their swollen, destroyed ankles and then go play, and they make it worse. It just doesn't heal. There was a great study that came out of Australia where they looked at soldiers who'd been given anti-inflammatories, right? Massive after ankle sprains, which is the same thing as icing in terms of suppressing the prostaglandin release from the injured site. And those, those soldiers were back on the, in the boots much faster, like two weeks faster than the cohort who did not have it, but they all had chronic ankle instability because the ligaments did not heal because they basically stopped the healing process. So don't take my word for it. <laughs> right. Go see for yourself. And yeah, more importantly, yeah. you know, we started... We started treating all our athletes this way without ice, and we've had more and more and more people. We have Cy Young Award winners who do not ice their elbows after the games. We've had, we have completely moved around and away, and now it's starting to be people are like, okay, we're getting better results, and we have better tools to manage the swelling, like compression, things like that. So, you know, don't take our word for it. Look up the research. Believe yourself. After surgeries, we don't ice anymore. It's remarkable. We see remarkable, remarkable outcomes. That is really, really interesting information, and I'll definitely look into the research on that a bit more myself. So I know we're uh, bumping up against the clock here. Uh, just a couple more quick questions. I wonder if you could talk about the no days off approach that you talk about in the book. Well, um, our friend Gary Reinel, um, who is sort of the, this, this athletic trainer friend who wrote this book, he has this great saying. He's like, look, if you know it's going to snow – 24 inches, one inch an hour for the next 24 hours. Isn't it easier if you could go out every hour and just sweep away the snow with a broom, right? Just one inch, just sweep it off. (laughs) Instead of waiting 24 hours to 24 inches of snow, because two feet of snow requires sort of a different tool. It's much heavier. And that idea really transcends, you know, a a lot of sports. It transcends a lot of concepts because... If I stay ahead a little bit, then I'm able to manage my dysfunctions and jump on dysfunctions before they become problems. So our no days off approach is, hey, you're a human being. 
if we commit to 10 to 15 minutes of mechanical work, restoration work, mobility every day, seven days a week, well, that aggregates into 90 plus minutes a week of taking care of your tissues, taking care of your joints, working on your range of motion. And suddenly this isn't one more thing you have to do. And because what we understand is that and, and really values that your time in the gym or time training or running should be spent running or in the gym. We want you to spend 10 or 15 more minutes a day working on these things. That's a discrete time from your training. So we don't have to give you, you're going to have to do this 30 minute warm up and 30 minute cool down and two hours of roll. No one's going to follow that. And what we find is if we give people this option, 10 or 15 minutes of mechanical restorative work every day, then that aggregates into significant, significant change. You, you hunt down and destroy your blind spots. You know, you're always sort of ahead of your next workout. So whatever I do today to make myself better, I'm always ahead of, you know, the next 10 workouts, 100 workouts. And so our idea of no days off is, hey, let's, especially if you're thinking of yourself as an athlete, you know, even if you're a runner, you should be thinking of yourself as an athlete. Why don't I get ready for my next run? And I can do that in these little discrete chunks that we know you can fit into your busy life. Right. So I think that's great advice. I always like to conclude an interview with an action item. You know, what can listeners take away and apply immediately in their training? And I think that's a great thing to do is apply the uh, 10 minutes a day uh, on restorative, on mobility work. Uh, what does that look like? I mean, is it a individual mobility program or are there typical mobility exercises yeah. you recommend in that 10 minutes? Sure. You know, here's the deal. All of the tissues below your hairline, you are responsible for. So, <laughs> you know, if your upper back is yeah. stiff and you're a runner, your head is forward on your neck and your shoulders are internally rotated. You know, you may not have any neck pain or shoulder pain, but you're running inefficiently. So we better spend some time addressing that. And what I'm telling you is that we need to get you one of the standards is we say no hot spots. So if something's hurting, it should get all of your attention until you find out what the problem is and make it feel better. Right? That's we sort of hit the brakes, got a hot spot, let's deal with that. Otherwise, we need to just sort of systematically work our way up and down the food chain, dealing with ankles, dealing with knees, dealing with muscles of the large muscle groups, dealing with, you know, my shoulders. And so what ends up happening is that we end up developing a language where I'm constantly roaming back and forth. Running is a little simpler because we're not Olympic lifting, right? I get to remove some things out of it. But what you'll find and what we find is that people are so smart and so savvy that they'll start to develop their favorites Yes. Because, hey, I sit in a chair for 15 hours a day. My hips are short. So, boy, I always work on my front of my hips and it just makes me feel better. I run faster. Great. That becomes one of your cornerstones of your own personal program. But we need people to start messing around with their own bodies and be responsible for figuring out what's not working and what isn't working and waiting for pain or injury to show up is the worst way to find out you had a problem. All right. Well, thanks for a great interview. And make sure to get Kelly's great new book, Ready to Run, which comes out on October the 21st. And, of course, be sure to always check in over at mobilitywad.com to learn more about what Kelly is sharing with the world. So thanks again, Kelly. This has been fantastic and hope to do it again down the line. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, man. So there you have the interview with Kelly, and I hope that uh, you really enjoyed that. Uh, thanks to Kelly Strett for taking the time to come back on the show. Uh, thanks to his wife, Juliet, who helped to coordinate this interview. And uh, I didn't mention, but uh, you know, this book is co-written by uh, T.J. Murphy, who shares some really great insight 
in the book as well. Uh, he is a big uh, runner, and he kind of relates a lot of uh, what Kelly talks about in the book to his personal running experience. So he is the co-author of the book as well. So just wanted to mention that also. Again, this is a, a very valuable book. I think really everyone should read it because it's about maximizing performance and, and I really, really loved it. As always, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to drop in a quick review in iTunes or Stitcher. That would be really, really awesome. And I wanted to thank today's show sponsor, which is Audible Audiobooks. If you'd like to get a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com forward slash train. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash train and check out audible audiobooks. So thanks for listening, guys. I appreciate it. I've got a great interview for you next week. You, uh, you will not want to miss that one either. And uh, like I said, this uh, week kicked off a series of new, great, uh, cutting-edge interviews for you here on the Ardella Training Podcast. So I will see you next week. Have a great week and uh, train strong, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ardellatraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.